You're listening to Art Snap, a podcast giving you a quick skim of famous works of art. Hey, this is Zach. And this is Claire. Hey, Claire. I'm so glad to see you. And I hear you've got something cool for us today. So give me a little bit of a tease. This episode, I want to talk about one of the most popular artists alive and how she found comfort in her art as therapy and the paintings from the 1950s and 60s that started her very long career. Okay, I'm really intrigued, and you know I love art as therapy, so what is the piece? Well, I want to discuss some of the early works by Yayoi Kusama. And specifically, let's talk about her Infinity Nets. It's actually a series of paintings that are mostly untitled. Oh, I do love her, but I'm not as familiar with some of her early works. Well, right. Many of us hear her name and we picture those spectacular, colorful installations called the Infinity Mirror Rooms. Mm -hmm. And although many of those sparkly installations, very Instagrammable, have eclipsed her earlier pieces, I want to share how these paintings became the foundational part of her art. I definitely know her recent works, the pumpkins, the polka dots, and of course her Infinity Mirror Rooms. In fact, that exhibition came to D.C. a few years back and tickets sold out so fast I didn't even get a chance to see it. Oh my goodness, same. In fact, her recent works and their popularity is what put her on my radar and made me kind of look into her very long life. I mean, she's in her 90s right now and her long career, and I was intrigued about where she started. So we're going back to the Infinity Nets. Um, why don't you describe them for us? I, I can, I've seen them online, but give me kind of a description so our listeners kind of a sense of what we're talking about. Sure. All right, so let's imagine we're standing in front of this painting or paintings, since it's, you know, many, many works, as I mentioned, and they're mostly created in the 50s and 60s. Imagine one of them very, very large, eight feet by nine feet rectangular. Uh, Some are even larger. They're as big as 30 feet, and they're created in oil. Each starts with a background color, so this ground color is going to be black or white or gray, and then there's going to be a single overlay color like red or white. Imagine this expanse of connected, tiny half-moon arcs painted meticulously in this widespread pattern that spans all over the canvas. It's almost like fish scales. Wow, that's cool. But, you know, I find that pattern to be so mesmerizing and almost hypnotic. Hundreds of those little arcs look like a monochromatic web of maybe lace or, I guess, a net, as they're appropriately named. Yeah, they are. And each of these are created by hand with this slight imperfection, causing that overall net to kind of shift or bow or ripple in this way that like a machine printed perfect pattern would not. Well, how did she create that pattern over such a huge expanse? It must have taken a long time, hours, weeks, days, months. I don't know. Well, definitely. And that was kind of part of her process. It was the time. Um, so imagine she's laying this huge, enormous canvas on the floor. And she stays up all through the night with one paintbrush, one color paint. And she's repeating that same C-shaped brushstroke over and over and over again, just like a chain, until it has covered this entire canvas, sometimes all night long till the sun comes up. God, that's so meticulous. And so somewhat exhausting too. I probably would have gotten bored after a while knowing me. But what was her drive to paint these with such an attention to detail for such a long period of time? I mean, how did she stay the course? Well, I want us to fully appreciate these, not just for like their intrinsic value of these, you know, as we said, these nets or these fish scale designs. But what appeals to me is the why she made them. 
These repetitive actions were her meditation of sorts. She was compulsively repeating a very simple action that was going to add up to a larger design. And this was for her own purposes. And it sort of reminded me of when I used to run. I didn't know you were a runner, Claire. (laughs) Oh, I would never have called myself a runner. But I really liked the mental benefits of that repetitive type of exertion. One step after the other, one foot in front of the other, slowly kind of adding up to be a meaningful distance. And I found that by exhausting my body, there was this peaceful meditative effect on my brain. It was a really unbeatable therapy for mild anxiety, truly. I saw a doctor once that said if you could bottle that feeling that you get from that kind of exertion that like, you know, we'd solve a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. I always felt that my brain kind of shifted to a better flowing creative place afterwards. So Kusama was a marathon painter. I mean, you you know, I love the idea of art as meditation, art as therapy, but how did she even, how did this become a part of her practice? Okay, well, for that, we're going to go to New York City in the late 1950s. Okay, but her life did start well before New York, right? Because she grew up in a small village in Japan? Well, yes, true, true. You're right, Zach. Um, And despite not having much money uh, by the age of 25... In Japan, she had already had three solo exhibitions. She started struggling with her symptoms of mental illness even long before being an adult. As a young child, she would have uh, vivid hallucinations, and she had lots of episodes of this. And as a result, she would draw things that she had seen. She never had a definite diagnosis, but part of her illness caused her to, in her own words, feel like she and her personality was fracturing and parts of hers were part of her was not really contained and it was just bleeding out into the world and she constantly was in danger of you know kind of losing herself and not having mm. boundaries she had this anxiety and compulsion because of how disoriented this felt to her all the time and it was overwhelming for her so she had a friend and a psychiatrist that encouraged her to just uproot, transplant, like leave home, uh, you know, change your scenery, really, and prevent her illness from getting much worse. Wow. And that's when she makes her way up to New York City, right? Yep. She ends up in New York. And the story goes that when she arrived, by the way, she had already written fan letters to Georgia O'Keeffe. <laughs> she had all of her money in her shoe. She was barely eating, barely sleeping, and she just obsessively painted these infinity nets. They were simple, repetitive, all-consuming tasks, and she just pushed and pushed and pushed herself to, you know, do. Wow, what a drive. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Did she actually share these with other people? Did she try and um, share them um, in galleries, or was it just for her? Well, they got noticed, and it didn't take her long to become well-known in the art community. She had her first show in New York in 1959, and she had five 30-foot infinity net canvases. That's enormous. It makes me think about the action painting that was happening around that time. Um, Mm -hmm. Pollock, de Kooning, um, where the act of creating was just as, maybe if not more, important than the outcome. Uh, Just a more calming version, more meditative version in this case. Yeah, definitely. Some people were calling them action paintings. Um, Willem de Kooning, Jackson Pollock, they all have these bold, aggressive drips, not really drips, just like slashes of paint that are slapped across the canvas. And we all enjoy seeing that spontaneity, um, the energy and that motion and the color and feeding off of high energy always feels good uh, to us viewers, right? Kusama's action was purposely the opposite, however. 
the repetition for the purpose of calming that unsteady mind of hers. Again, that reminded me of running, although I have <laughs> never stayed up through the night to take a long run. So I remember reading that sometimes she would wake up and discover she had painted the windows, the walls, the floors, and even her own body, I guess, into infinity, kind of like a, a yeah. trance. Yeah, they were her meditation, and in a way, that was her self-prescribed therapy, and her paintings contained her. Mm, kind of like a net. Yeah, and not to say that male artists through history have not done uh, similar things, but if we look back at female-centric arts and crafts through the centuries, we see a slightly different approach as far as action. There's the slow, repetitive, consistent, those makers that have lived through time. Right, like quilting, knitting, beading, any type of textile work. Yeah, definitely. Um, the beauty is in those millions and uh, millions of like tiny motions that add up or they stack up to something important and often beautiful. Interesting. So it points, I, I guess those sleepless nights must have felt endless, but it seems like she was finding a way to successfully manage her mental health and those constraints. Well, yeah, I, I think it was managed, but always on a razor's edge. She is, you know, handling, you know, quite profound issues here. And she managed until she didn't. She was doing well in the art world, but she was, of course, facing sexism in this male-dominated art world. And she's facing racism, thanks to the lingering anti-Japanese sentiments all these years after World War II. Oh, that male-dominated art scene in the 20th century. Yeah. There were even situations where she accused both Klaus Oldenburg and Andy Warhol for stealing ideas that she exhibited first. Really? Yeah, she created these soft sculptures that uh, they were hand-sewn. She covered ironing boards, sofas, chairs, all these surfaces with like these wavy, pointy, kind of phallic-like shapes. They were polka-dotted. And then a year later, her friend, I'm using air quotes here, Klaus Oldenburg and his wife, Van Bruggen, they started doing their soft sculptures that, of course, is synonymous with you know their artwork. And, you know, she didn't want to be that whiny person pointing fingers, so she reacted by just trying to go bigger and better. She did an exhibit where her artwork uh, was, you know, shown, and she also covered the walls with her own wallpaper that matched the art. Andy Warhol was a guest at this opening, and he saw it and very openly loved it. And then his next show, according to her, featured that repeating cow wallpaper that we know as Andy Warhol's. Wow, that Manhattan art scene sounds like a lot and with big personalities. And she eventually leaves New York. Yeah, she eventually leaves. 1977, she returns to Japan, and um, she was at quite a crisis point. She checked herself into a psychiatric hospital. And would you believe me if I told you that she still lives in that same hospital today? Wow. But how does she continue to create and have so many high-profile collaborations like she just did one recently with Louis Vuitton? Well, because she voluntarily checked herself in, set that up as her life, her place. She leaves and goes almost daily to a nearby art studio. And she creates her art and she continues this very long, prolific career in the same way ever since. I'm inspired by the self-awareness that she has to not only continue doing what she loves and what brings her peace, but to do it in a way that keeps her, I guess, safe. Yeah, it does appear. She found an ongoing formula that works for her um, and just goes to show like one size doesn't fit all, um, especially for um, mental illness and help. 
She has lived this long life. She produces a lot. She gets high accolades from the art world. And the fashion world. I mean, she's been uh-huh. a fashion icon for a long time. Killer. Killer style. So where can we see the Infinity Nets in person? I mean, you know I love a good museum, Claire. So where can I go? Well, if you want to view them in person, the National Gallery of Art in D.C. has a 1960 yellow net, but it's not currently on display. There are also some in the collections of the Guggenheim and the MoMA of New York and the Art Institute of Chicago, but they aren't always on display. If you're in London, go to the Victoria Miro Art Gallery. They have many early works by her. I have to say, as I'm sitting here researching where to view Infinity Nets, I found so many of her other popular works, the pumpkins, the polka dots. It seems like a lot of the nets are stashed away in storage. I know. Some are still available through dealers and galleries, but they're rarely on display. So remember, they are very large, and they're often overshadowed by those new, brighter, more sensational installations. Maybe we can just bid on one at an upcoming auction. I saw one recently at Christie's that sold for a few million. Well, sure, Zach. Let's just dip into the petty cash of ArtSnap. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for bringing this one, Claire. A great story and a great reminder of how art is therapy and meditation can keep us all calm in this crazy, crazy world. If you'd like to learn more about the work of art and the artist, check us out on Instagram, artsnap.pod. If you liked hanging out today and talking about art, rate us and subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. See you next time.